You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. My name is Mike White and I am bringing you an interview that I did with Joan Kramer and David Healy, the authors of In the Company of Legends. It's a book that came out back in April 2015. I highly recommend it. These two were producers and directors of a series of profiles that were done on PBS back in the 80s. And they have some terrific stories to tell about putting these shows together. Really great stuff. The book is amazing, and I think the interview is a lot of fun, too. I know I had a lot of fun talking to them, so I hope that you enjoy it. And please pick up the book if you get a chance. You can find the link to it over at our website, projection-booth.com. Once again, this is In the Company of Legends with Joan Kramer and David Healy. I wanted to know, how did you two meet? I was hired to uh, be an associate producer at public television's uh, WNET in New York uh, for a series on the arts that was called Skyline. And I was assigned to David to do a show with David being a producer-director and me being associate producer. And the first show we did together was a show about a set and costume designer named Ruben Terrarutunian. But he was a great friend until we got into the studio, and then he literally wanted to call the shots. <laughs> literally. <laughs> I, I'd been at the station for quite a long time, um, and I, I was I was very I was thrilled when this, when they decided to start do a, uh, doing a weekly series on the arts, um, and I was brought into it. And uh, as as Joan said, this is the first show that she and I did together. It was uh, it was not an easy one. So having got through that, I think prepared us for the rest. <laughs> I know one of your early uh, ventures together was um, working on a documentary about Fred Astaire. How did that kind of come about? That actually came out of a show that we were doing for that Skyline series. It was uh, a show with Rudolf Nureyev, who was in New York to dance with the Joffrey Ballet on a reconstruction of some uh, Dijinsky choreography. And uh, Joan knew him from when she worked on the Dick Cabot show. He said to me, my favorite American dancer is Fred Astaire. Could you ever arrange for me to meet him? And by then, I was a friend of Joanne Woodward's, and I told, Dave, I told David about this, and uh, we then talked to Joanne, and we came up with the concept, because Joanne, by her own admission, is a, is a ballet uh, freak. <laughs> she claims in some future life she will be a dancer. And um, we came up with the idea of, of, of her interviewing Nureyev and Astaire. Well, Nureyev said, wonderful, and Astaire turned us down flat. So it evolved into shows about uh, profiles of Fred Astaire, which Joanne wound up narrating, and Nureyev was interviewed for them. But I never did manage to make them meet each other in the same room. So we got them all on the show, but not at the same time. Now, what were these shows like? Did they run very long? Were they kind of standard documentary fare, or what? What do these? Uh, what are these programs like back then? Well, the, the initially the, the the programs that we did were for public television, and they were funded to run specifically during the pledge week periods. 
And so they, uh, for example, these stair shows were in a, in a one-hour slot and ran 50 minutes for about 10 minutes for fundraising. So they were, they were slightly unconventional lengths, but they were full-length profiles, is the point, which for some reason had disappeared from American television. Nobody was doing it at that time. Uh, I, I, I'm still baffled by that. I'm still baffled that nobody had tried to do a show about Fred Astaire. Nobody had tried to do a show about Catherine Hepburn. I mean, they, they, Hepburn would appear maybe on a short profile on the 60 Minutes or 2020, but no full-length profiles were being done. So we had a field wide open to us, which was quite wonderful. Not for long, of course, because people cottoned on to what was happening, and then everybody started doing it. But uh, I mean, we're not claiming we invent- invented the genre, obviously, because it had been around for a while. But it, for some reason, it was dormant at that time. What was it like working with Fred Astaire? I mean, where was he at in his career at this point? Fred Astaire basically was retired. Um, and we, frankly, did not work with Fred Astaire. I mean... <laughs> Fred Astaire did not want us to do these programs, and we just didn't give up. So thanks to, quote, as he said, our tenacity, (laughs) he gave us permission to proceed, which we thought, oh, that's very nice. He's a public figure. We're proceeding anywhere. Anyway, not knowing that Fred Astaire had a very clever lawyer back in the 1930s when he was at RKO who put into his contract that he has the rights to approve or not approve the use of film clips. Now, that's very interesting because in the 1930s, nobody was using film clips for anything except perhaps for, you know, a coming attraction for a movie. So when he gave us his permission, it was his, it was agent that said, uh, Mr. Mr. Stair will give you his permission to continue. I remember after the phone call, I said to Joan, oh, big deal. We were going to do it anyway. But of course, it was a huge deal <laughs> because now we could use his clips. We did not know. I, uh, frankly, this is where our, our ignorance propelled us forward. If we had known that he controlled his clips, when he first said to us, no, go away, I don't want you to do this, we might well have gone away and never produced the show on a stair, and then there would have been no subsequent shows. And, and, and as a result, there would have been no book. <laughs> and no book, of course. <laughs> no shows, no book. What did Astaire think about the two documentaries? Because you ended up doing a second one on him. What did he think of those films? In fact, we did a pair at at, at once. Um, We we subsequently did a third one. Uh, But that first first year, we were asked by PBS to do a show about Astaire for various reasons I won't go into. We split it into two. It became two 50-minute shows in in two one-hour blocks. And uh, when, when Astaire finally when we finally got his permission by his agent, there was a little sting in the tail. His agent said, and by the way, Mr. Astaire thinks it would be a good idea if you showed him the rough cut before you put your shows to bed. Astaire, Astaire was known to be a, a serious taskmaster. Uh, he, he was a perfectionist, uh, uh, probably one of the greatest perfectionists uh, in Hollywood history. And um, his, his associate and fellow choreographer and dancer told us, he didn't. He didn't. He was pitying as having to show Astaire a rough cut because he could be ruthless. He said if he didn't like something. This is Hermes Pan, by the way. So the day came when we went to California with what was then. You know that was not the digital age. We had what was really rough as a rough cut. I mean, the film clips were work clips from work prints that were terrible quality, scratchy, and awful. Um, there were black holes where still photographs would eventually be put in. 
and David did the scratch track, which would eventually be Joanne Woodward doing the narration. And how we had the nerve to show him this mess of a of a rough cut. I mean, it wasn't a, it was it was put together. The, the structure okay, was the structure was all there. All the elements were in place, and it was pretty much the way it ended up. But it just looked. Well, the word rough is very appropriate. <laughs> the first number was Top Hat, White Tie, and Tails from the film Top Hat. When it was about, I don't know, two minutes in, we suddenly heard him humming along and tapping his feet. And David, who had arrived in California with what looked like the flu, suddenly thought, oh my God, maybe I won't have to deal with a difficult Fred Astaire. And it turned out he was crazy. He thought the shows were terrific. We've actually got a wonderful letter from him uh, thanking us for doing the shows. You guys would go on to work with Catherine Hepburn a few times. What was that like, first meeting her? Well, it came about because of the shows on Astaire. Uh, As as I I said, the the funding came from a a part of money in uh, PBS in Washington, specifically for shows about Pledge Week. So when the Astaire shows aired... They were they were very successful. The the stations loved them. They made a lot of money with it, with both shows, and we got a very very positive publicity for, for for PBS. It was it was a, a quality show. It was the sort of thing that PBS really wants wants to have, and at the same time they were popular, so they made money for the stations. So it was a, a maybe a, I don't know a few weeks after the shows aired, I get this call from the executive at uh, PBS in Washington, who had originally given us the go ahead. And he said, well, the stations love the show, so who are you going to do next? And I said, well, well but that was it. We just wanted to do a show about Fred Astaire. He said, no, 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 the stations want more. Who are you going to do next? <laughs> and so I said, well, let's think about it. And, I, and, and Joan, it was Joan that came up with the idea for next. Yeah, I suggested Catherine Hepburn. So the executive said to David, that's a great idea. Why don't you just call her? Well, you know. Picking up the phone and calling Catherine Hepburn is not exactly something you do lightly. And by the way, just to, just let me interject something. That was the beginning of a of of a, a, a of a series of questions that happened every time we finished a show. The title of this book was meant to be "So Who Are You Going to Do Next?" Until our publisher thought maybe we should change the title. It could have a different kind of connotation. and frankly it never occurred to us because the question we were asked was always in the context of who are you going to do another profile about you know so so when they when they said that to us we said what what do you mean another connotation we had no idea what they were talking about until it was explained to us quite specifically what they meant (laughs) Catherine Hepburn was our was our next subject but it was not it was not a matter of picking up the phone and calling it, although Joan had her number, by the way, but we decided this was not the way to go. And um, what what Joan did was she picked up her phone and called Pandro Berman, who had been the head of the RKO Pictures in the 30s. Uh, and we met him because he was Fred Astaire's boss. So we interviewed him when we did the shows about Fred Astaire. And so, of course, he was also Catherine Hepburn's boss at the same time. But he said to Joan, um, what, was it, what was his word to Joan? <laughs> He said, to him, "I'm not your man." He said, "Kate and I got on, but you know, we, we, I, I, we were never really good friends. They, you know, they probably butted heads over everything, you know, in those days." But he said, "You need to talk to George Cukor, her favorite director, who directed her in something like nine films, and they're still very good friends. 
including yes. the very first film. Yes. Very first film, yes. And he said, why don't I call George and then um, tell him to expect your call? And I realized right off the bat, this is not a job I should be doing. This is a David job. David is a director. He should talk to a director. And um, he did. And yes, and, and Chukwu said, I think it's a terrific idea. He said, as luck would have it, I will be in New York in a couple of weeks' time, and I'm going to have dinner with Kate. I'll, I'll tell her about it. I really think she should do this. So he said, I'll get back to you. Well, look, he never got back to us. <laughs> and eventually I realized I had to call him again. And he said, he said well, I, I told Kate about it, and she said she doesn't want to do it. But I think she should. You should call her and persuade her. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, my goodness, I thought we'd managed to give the hard work to George Cukor, and I was right back in our lap. <laughs> <laughs> so he gave me the number, and I dialed, and she picked up her own phone. And I don't know, Mike, if you can imagine what it's like to ha hear Catherine Hepburn's voice on the end of the phone for the first time. <laughs> She was, yes, what? <laughs> I can't do her voice, but you can imagine what it was like. And I said to her, Miss Hepburn, I think uh, George Cukor uh, told you last week that public television has asked us to do a show about you, um, and uh, would, you, would you be willing to let us do that? Can't do that, much too busy. I'll be on the road with West Side Waltz. She was in the play West Side Waltz, and she was, she was absolutely correct. She was about to tour the country. So I said, well, Miss Hepburn, we can come to wherever you are, and we can film you whatever location you're in. No, 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 can't do that. We'll be much too busy. There'll be no time for it. So I'm thinking, oh, dear me. But, but I realized that she hadn't hung up on me yet. <laughs> so, uh, so I said, well, Miss Hepburn, there is another way to go. If you can't be on the show, we can do a show very similar to the one we did with Fred Astaire. He was not on the show himself, although he gave us his permission. But we talked to all the people who'd worked with him, his friends and colleagues, and we put together a portrait of Fred Astaire in that way, using, of course, film clips. Her response was, can't do that, they're all dead. A wonderful Catherine Hepburn reply when you think about it. But, of course, it was an opening, and, uh, and we, we took it from there, and eventually she, she gave us his permission, and we did the show. So you end up getting to direct Catherine Hepburn. That must have been something. That was a later show. Yeah. Not, not on that yeah. show, because when, after the show aired, uh, we get a call from Catherine Hepburn saying, um, I didn't see the show, which, by the way, we don't think is true. We're pretty sure she did. I didn't see the show, but all my friends said it was wonderful. Come for tea. Come for tea tomorrow. So we went around for tea, and that was actually the first time we met her in person, and it was the beginning of what, Joan? Was it a 17-year relationship? 18 years. It was soon after that tea that I got a phone call out of the blue, and I hear, Joan, it's Kate Hepper. Now that I have friends at public television, let's do a show together about Spencer, meaning Tracy. Now, I don't know if you know, Mike, but up to that point, anybody who interviewed Catherine Hepburn knew better than to bring up Spencer Tracy other than to talk about him as an actor. Nobody was going to take the risk of asking Catherine Hepburn about their personal relationship because if they had, she would have ended the interview very quickly. So when she said that to me, I mean, I, my mouth dropped open. And I don't know where I got the guts to say to her, Miss Hepburn, somebody's on my other phone. There wasn't anybody on my other phone, but I said, somebody's on my other phone. Could you hold on a minute while I tell them I'll call them back? She said, sure. So I put her on hold, and I screamed across the hall where David's office was from mine, 
And David came in quite calmly and said to me, and I said, David, Catherine Hepburn is on the phone, and she just asked us to do a show about Spencer Tracy. He said, good, ask her if she'll host it. So I went back on the line, and I said, Ms. Hepburn, I'm back. Would you be willing to host a show about Spencer Tracy? What the hell do you think I'm talking about? Of course I should host it. Come to lunch tomorrow. We'll talk about it. And so that's how I eventually got to be directing Catherine Hepburn. And uh, yes, it was. Trial uh, by fire, by the way. <laughs> it was. I was wondering if I would sleep at all the night before. I think I did get a little bit of sleep, but <laughs> it was an, a very early morning call uh, on the on the golf course of the Riviera Country Club in Los Angeles one chilly December morning, and that uh, that was the baptism by fire. But it worked out. And, uh, and in the end, we had a wonderful shoot together. She was once she got over her nervousness, because she was nervous too, um, and we we got over that initial hiccup, which is which is described in great detail in the book. Uh, she was a dream to work with. She was the sort of person, of course, she had an opinion. She had an opinion. She would tell you, and. Uh, and if she had some suggestions, she would tell you. And nine times out of ten, her suggestions were damn good. And they only improved what we were doing. Now, what is it? She didn't like to wear a radio mic? That was that, that the, the situation that morning. As I said, I was very nervous. What I didn't realize at the time, and it only occurred to me much later, was that Kate was nervous, too. We were asking to do her to do something she had never done before. She'd never hosted a program. She had never looked into a camera lens. Remember all those years she'd been told, you mustn't do that, you mustn't look into the lens. She'd never read a teleprompter. So she was doing things that she, she had to learn. She had to learn a new part of her craft, as it were. And, uh, and all at once. Yes, all at once. And all at once. Yes. And so when when she finally when she arrived on the location where I was setting up with the cameraman, I was setting up a shot. It was on the as I say on the on the golf course. We were trying to match into a shot from the, the movie Pat and Mike, which was shot in the same place. So I'm working with the cameraman. Joan is is, is uh, greeting Hepburn, who has just arrived, and eventually Joan. What happens? Hepburn is haranguing our poor sound man, who was such a he's such a sweet guy. And she's saying, if I knew I had to wear one of these, I would have never agreed to this. They work in Spain, but they never work here well. He, she wouldn't let him put the mic on her. Well, I went over to David, and David saw me coming with a very not very happy look on my face. And I said, David, you better go and talk to Kate. She's giving, having a problem. So David went over to her and said, good morning. Um, is there a problem, Mrs. Everett? And once again... They never work here. They're hopeless. They work in Spain, but they never work here. I don't like these. This was not the moment to find out why they worked in Spain and not here. I just had to accept that fact. <laughs> and somehow, I'm not quite sure how I did it, but I calmed her down and persuaded her to try the radio mic, and she put it on reluctantly, huffing and puffing a little bit along the way. And then I said, let's, uh, the camera was set up. I said, Ms. Hepburn, um, let's see if, uh, let's just run through the prompter to make sure you can read it okay, because it's a script we'd gone through the day before with her. 
tell Mike uh, what you would ask her in New York prior to Oh, yes. To I'd say, it, we'd have meetings. In, we'd been through the script so many times. It's ridiculous. I remember one of the meetings in New York, I said to her, Miss Hepburn, I, I'm going to want you to look into the camera lens. And she said, no, no, it would be better if you stand next to the camera and I talk to you. Now, I realized I had to stand firm on that. So I said, no, no, Miss Hepburn, you really do have to look into the lens. You're the host. You have, you, you have to talk to the viewer. And I said, and don't worry about having to learn the script because it will be on a prompter. You just look into the lens and the script will be rolling in front of you. I said, do you have any problems with distance vision? Will you, will you be able to see okay? She said, oh, I'm falling apart, but there's nothing wrong with my eyesight. So fast forward to this first setup uh, on the golf course. Uh, okay, Miss Heaven, let's, uh, let's see. Let's just roll the script to make sure everything is fine. So I said to the prompter guy, uh, roll, roll the script. And I'm standing next to Kate and she says, can't see a thing. I said, okay. This is the woman who said she had no trouble with her eyesight, of course. I said, well, I can't, I can't move the camera because we're matching the shot. So why don't you take a couple of paces forward and we'll try it again. So she steps forward two paces. And I say to the prompter guy, uh, let's roll the script again. She puts her hands over her eyes, you know, shielding from the sun, which wasn't, wasn't much of a sun anyway. Absolutely hopeless. Can't see a thing. So I'm thinking to myself, oh, dear me, <laughs> one problem after another. At least we've got the radio mic on, and now how can we actually get something taped? So I, I'm trying to come up with a solution, and of course, at the time, I come up with one, and I think I'm brilliant, but looking back, it was the only solution <laughs> at the time. I said to him, oh, okay, Mr. Hepburn, look, we don't, we don't really need a script. You know what happens here. You, you're talking to the viewer, and you say, we're here on the Riviera Country Club golf course. This is where we made the movie Pat and Mike. You describe the characters that you and Spencer played, and you lead us into the clip. I said, you, can, you, you know what to say here. We don't need a script. Let, let's, just, let's just run it through, and, you can, uh, and, and I'm sure you can tell the story. So as that, then I decided to walk over to the camera to, so I can see it from the camera's point of view. Well, as I'm walking over, she's, she's already doing it. I turn around, and she's in full flow uh, <laughs> re- rehearsing, and I think, oh, this is right. This is absolutely fine. But she didn't need a script at all. So I said to her, that was wonderful, Miss Heaven. Let's rehearse it one more time, and then we'll do a take. Well, why don't you just waste the film? Let's just do it. So, so we do it, and she's terrific. We do two more takes, and each one gets better. And by the time we've done the third take, she knows that she can do this. Her, her nervousness disappears, and from that point on, she's a dream. So the initial okay. radio mic problem was just an expression of her not knowing what, whether she could handle this. There's a PS to it. The next day, we were shooting at the MGM lot, on the MGM, the old MGM lot, and in front of the famous Stahlberg building, which is completely glass front. And the, and the sound man, same sound man, said, David, I can't boom this. I can't use a boom here. It's too wide. Because we had, we had rigged up a temporary boom, so she wouldn't have to wear the radio mic all the time. So but he said, he said, I can't, I can't use a boom here. The shot's much too wide. So David thought to himself, I better, I better tell her as fast as I can get this yes, over. Yes, let's get this one over with quickly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Kate's, Kate's standing there waiting for us. And I said, Miss Hepburn, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you, we do have a problem here. What is it? What is it? I said, well, the shot is, the, the shot is so wide we can't use the boom mic on, on you. We're going to have to, you're going to have to wear the radio mic again. She doesn't say a word to me. She just 
walks over to the sound man. Poor John Vincent. She walks over to him and she looks up at him and says, Young man, you didn't have the courage to tell me, did you? Who were some of your other favorites to interview over the years? Well, for that show alone, everybody um, that we asked said yes because, you know, she was about to do a show, host a show, and talk about Tracy. So everybody we asked checked it out with her first and then said yes. The only person that said no because there was a snafu in his office was Sidney Poitier. And suddenly he got wind that everybody, that this show was real. And he called Hepburn and apologized. And she called us up and said, he's seen the light. You've got to get Sidney in the show. But uh, by the way, at this point, we, we'd almost put it to bed. It was almost completely edited. She says, no, you have to open it up. You have to get Sydney in. And we did. We, we went out to, uh, we, we were in New York. We went out to L.A. and we, we, we did film him. He was terrific. He was really terrific. But, uh, but almost, but, there were so many people in that show. Yeah, almost too many. But, but you're asking, I think, of our other subjects for shows. One biggie, of course, was the, the show we did about James Stewart that Johnny Carson hosted. I mean, all the shows you did with with Hepburn were very special. I would say the 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 Jimmy Johnny show was a very special show as well. Oh, look, look I, it's, when you ask a question like that, it's a bit like asking a, a parent who's his favorite child, <laughs> or Fred Astaire who's his favorite partner. Uh, all the sh- all the shows have something special for us, and and when we're doing them, we just fall in love with the show we're doing. Uh, so it's w- w- looking back and saying which are the be- which are the the ones that really stand out. It- it's hard to say. Well, tell me about the Jimmy Stewart show. Uh, what was that like, and why Johnny Carson to be the host? Were they friends in real life? As you probably know, Jimmy used to go on to the Tonight Show, and you know he was famous for reading his silly poems. And Johnny and he on The Tonight Show were just magic together. And as we discovered, that wasn't an act. They really were friends and very good friends, and they cared deeply about each other. So we were in California on the way to a meeting with MGM, who was co-producing it with public television by supplying clips in exchange for some distribution rights after PBS had aired the program. And... David suddenly looked at me in in the car and he said, you know, we're bound to be asked who's going to host this show. Amazingly enough, we hadn't even thought about it because we were so busy keeping this show on track. There was a whole bunch of things going on having to do with that show almost falling apart several times. And suddenly David said to me, what about Johnny Carson? Jimmy's terrific whenever he goes on that show and Johnny really seems genuinely interested in him. Off the top of our heads in that meeting... They said, who would you like to host the show? And David said, what about Johnny Carson? Well, they were ecstatic. Of course, then we had to get Johnny Carson. And we did it through a talent executive at NBC at the time named David Tebbett, who was largely responsible for Johnny getting The Tonight Show after Jack Parr left. And um, I called David Tebbett, and he said, write me a letter, and I'll give it to Johnny. And two days later, he said, Johnny's going to do this for you. Here's his home number he wants you to call. I called Johnny, and he said, I'd be happy to do this with you if you're sure it's okay with Jim. And I said, okay. I I said, said, Jimmy is going to be ecstatic, and he was. And then Johnny said, come out and let's talk. So we went to California to this gorgeous house. I mean, it was right with a 180-degree view of the water at Point Doom at the end of Malibu. 
on a cliff. He showed us around, and he was very proud. It wasn't quite finished. He was having tennis courts built across the road. And then he took us down this winding staircase to his den, and we sat down. It was a lovely day, gorgeous. And suddenly he looked at us and said, you know, I've been thinking I'm the wrong guy to host this show. Well, talk about going from elation to depression in one second. And he said, you need Cary Grant. Well, if Johnny Carson never did anything outside of The Tonight Show except occasionally host the uh, Oscar telecast, Cary Grant never went on television at all, period, never. So the idea of him saying we need Cary Grant was, I mean, it was almost more than we could absorb. And he, and he followed it by saying, and I'm a friend of his, so I'll call and ask him for you. We left That's Johnny that Carson house. being your talent coordinator. Can you imagine that? <laughs> we left that house feeling so depressed for two reasons. Number one, Cary Grant was very unlikely to say yes to do this, even if Johnny Carson called him, because he didn't go on television. And, even, and if he said no, we suddenly we thought, oh, my gosh, Johnny's going to run around trying to get one big name after another until he lands somebody to replace himself with. It could take weeks, months. Well, the next day, I'm, we're at the hotel. It was a terrible night. We had a, Both of us had a sleepless night. And the next day, my phone rang in my room at the hotel, and it was Johnny. And he said to me, well, I've called Carrie. And he, the housekeeper told me he's out of town for several weeks doing that one-man show he does about his life and career at colleges. He won't do it on, he won't come on my show or anybody else's, but he'll appear at colleges. So um, I guess you're stuck with me. Well, again, talk about mouth dropping open. I said to him when I recovered, I said, Johnny, you don't have any idea how happy I am to be so stuck with you. So that's how we got the two of them together. And it was, it, it, did, it did work beautifully. There's no doubt about it. It was, Joan said that, I mean, they, it was it, that was not an act, what you saw on The Tonight Show. They really liked each other. And the, the day we spent shooting them together on the Universal Backlot was, was wonderful. And I think, it, I think it comes across in the show. You really feel it. This was very much a change of pace for Carson. I mean, natural when it comes to working on television, but yeah, you're right. I don't really see Johnny Carson hosting documentaries, doing much work outside of TV. What was it like working with him and kind of having him be your host on this show? Well, well, that that of course was a concern because we were going to be—he was going to be just as Kate was out of her element. He was going to be out of his element. Right. Uh, he he did his show to time as though it were live. Oh, he did the Oscars; they were live. He wasn't used to a single camera shoot where you're stopping and resetting and you're doing retakes and there's a lot of sitting around. Now, now Jimmy, of course, this was his been his livelihood for years. He was very comfortable with this, but I was I was concerned that Johnny would be get a bit. Um, and I was more—I was much more nervous about him than I was about Jimmy when we first when we started shooting that day. But but Jimmy was very supportive um, of, of Johnny. Whenever whenever Johnny did a good take, I mean, what would he would say, Jason? That's great, John. That's good, really good, John. <laughs> Uh, and eventually, I, I could I could feel that, that Johnny was relaxing and getting comfortable with the pace of the day shooting because it was you know we started very early in the morning and we basically ended when the sun set, uh, which was uh, it was a December day so the sun was was setting relatively early in the afternoon but it was a long a long day of uh, single camera shooting, um, and he he adapted to it beautifully in the end. Well, one of the things we we made sure of is when he had scripted pieces to camera. 
unlike the teleprompter that we had for Kate, we knew that he liked to have all his script on cue cards. So we actually hired the same cue card guy that worked the Tonight Show with him and put, this, put all his script on cue cards for him. It was terrific. It was funny and adorable with Jimmy. And Jimmy, they were, I mean, they were, I always tell people, they were like a mutual admiration society of two. Um, John, Jimmy kept coming up to me and saying, isn't it wonderful of John to be doing this? And then Johnny, and then he'd say it to Johnny. And Johnny would come up to me and say, if he tells me one more time how wonderful it is of me to be doing this, I'm going to strangle him. Doesn't he know who he is? I said, no. no. He thinks you're the only star on this lot today. Jimmy Stewart was, what, 80 years old when you guys were making this movie? Uh, how old was he? Oh, that's a good question. It was, it was certainly in his late 70s, maybe in his 80s at that point. I, I, I don't have the dates in front of me. Uh, and it was a concern. It was definitely a concern. Um, and the the first time that we met him in his home, um, he we, we were sitting in the living room uh, with his wife, Gloria, and uh, we hear him coming down the stairs and into the room walks this tall but very bent over man who kind of looked gray. Uh, he wasn't wearing his toupee. Uh, he had no energy to him at all. He was very polite and uh, you know, expressed enthusiasm for the show and so on. And we described to him what we were going to do. And, but when we left that, that day, I said to Joan, I, I said, I'm, I'm so worried. I, I don't think he can hold together a two-hour show. We sold PBS on the idea that, John, that Jimmy Stewart's going to be telling his own story. And I, I, can't, I can't see how it can last. Uh, there's, no, there's no energy there. But we didn't have a plan B, <laughs> so we plowed ahead. And then what happened is, uh, this is, you must know this, this is, this is so showbiz, I should have seen it coming. The, day, the first day we, did, we interviewed him, again, it was in his home, and I hear him coming down the stairs again as before. But this time he's wearing makeup, he's wearing his best sports jacket, he's wearing his toupee, and into the room walks James Stewart, the movie star all ready to go and full of energy. And bolt upright and looking absolutely 20 years younger. You guys, you interviewed so many people that I would just consider Hollywood royalty. Uh, you know, we've talked about several of them. I know that you did some work, too, with Henry Fonda. What was he like? <laughs> it's very strange you mentioned Henry Fonda. We had a, a very similar situation with, with him, the one I just described with Jimmy Stewart. He just finished on Golden Pond. And uh, we were actually interviewing him about Catherine Hepburn for that first show we, we did about her. Uh, and as we're, as we're setting up uh, the camera outside his home, he, he comes out to, to, to chat and, you know, and say hello to everybody. And I, and I think I, I said to myself, look, I've got to occupy him while the camera's getting ready. So I said, Mr. Fonda, can, can I go through some of the questions we'll be asking you so you can get your thoughts together? I, didn't, I, I thought it's better to let him start thinking about it ra now rather than umming and erring on camera. So um, I, I go through the questions. Um, uh, could you tell us the first time you saw Catherine Hepburn? Uh, I don't remember. Um, do you do you have any you and she have any different approaches to to filming? Oh no, there's nothing to say about that. Um, uh, what was the first day like on on Golden Pond? Mm, uh, uh, nothing. I went through all the questions. Not a thing. Mike, it was a very cold, brisk morning, and I suddenly started to sweat. 
we're standing outside with a great big star who agreed to do this interview, who's telling David he has nothing to say. So the, eventually, of course, the cameras and lights are ready, and I say to him, Mr. Vonder, uh, please, you know, please take a seat. And, uh, and I sat next to the camera to ask the questions. And I said, I'm going, I'm going to go through the same questions again. If, if you have nothing to say, that's fine. But if anything pops into your head, you know, just, just, just go with it. So I asked the first question. Can you tell us about the first time you and Catherine had been met? Well, she comes out and she says to me, it's about time. It's again, it's the same thing. Henry Fonda on the ca- on camera lights and there he is performing. He he was a wonderful interview. <laughs> oh, you must have just been so thankful yes. when that started. Yes. Oh yeah. wow. Shocked is more like it. I mean, we thought we we're going to have a nod here and a grunt there, and that would be it. And at the end of the interview, we said uh, we were chatting when it light, and I thanked him, obviously. And uh, and we said, Mr. Fonda, we'd love to do a program about you. Uh, how would you feel about that? He said, Just let me know any time. Yes, of course we can do that. So we put in a proposal to PBS for a program about Henry Fonda, and it took them a long time to reply. And eventually, we I get a phone call, and they say it's bad news. They said we've been considering, but we don't think we want to show about Henry Fonda. Later that same day, news comes across, and Fonda just died. It was like he'd been killed twice in the same day. I hate to use the word, that word, but it, it felt like, how, how can you do this to him? <laughs> about 10 years later, we were asked to do a show about Henry Fonda, and we did with Jane as its host. That must have been kind of emotional for her. It was very. Very emotional, yes. As Jane said to us in some early meetings, she said, my father always had an expression, the founders cry at a good stake. That show worked out very well because we did find archival footage um, and audio of Henry Fonda himself talking about his career. So we had Henry talking about it, we had Jane, and we had Peter, and we had uh, Henry's wife, Shirley. So the show was called Fonda and Fa- on Fonda, and it should be called The Fonders on Fonda because they were all, uh, all still took part in the show. So I've kind of been skirting around it, and you guys made mention of this, but a lot of the reason why we're talking today is because of your book, In the Company of Legends. How did you decide to take these experiences that you had over this period of time, making these documentary shows for PBS and for other venues as well, and let's make a book out of this? What was that impetus? Whenever we worked with somebody or had a funny or interesting or moving experience, we often would tell the stories to friends and family. And of course, everybody would listen to the stories and say, you've got to write a book. And we'd say, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, we were a little busy. It was not exactly. (laughs) So at what point, just so that we wouldn't forget, um, we started dashing off on, on the computer, the stories, but without any form or without any flow and without any connection between them. And just to keep it for posterity. And when we did this, several times, David and I suddenly thought to each, said to each other, maybe we have a book here. And then, of course, we had to find a literary agent, which we did. We were introduced to our literary agent that actually got us the deal to do this book by Gary Cooper's daughter, Maria Cooper Janis, who, who um, knew this literary agent because he represented the book about her that her husband did, his own life story. She's married to the pianist Byron Janis. And Byron did his autobiography, and it was represented by the literary agent that then took on our book. 
and he sold it to Beaufort Books. But of course, the bad news then was the bad news then was we actually had to write it. <laughs> yes, I hate, to say, I hate I hate to tell you, but now you have to write the book. <laughs> which 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 is a very different discipline. I mean, we've done a lot of writing for television. It's very different writing for a book, um, and it's a lot of fun. It's hard work, but it's a lot of fun, and it was it, it was great putting these stories down. But and one interesting thing here is that because there were two of us, we had of course two sets of members to rely on. But our secret source was that Joan kept notes all these years. She kept a diary. She kept scrapbooks. So we had those to refer to. Well. I, I, have, I have calendars going all the way back. I can tell you the date that we first went to tea at Catherine Hepburn's house. Yes, yeah, so if there's a date in the book, you better believe it's right. Joan, I know that you probably had a lot of these stories and everything, and then David would try to tell you his stories, and you would say, no, that's not actually how it worked. How often did you have to correct his memory when it came to these <laughs> You assume it's that way. <laughs> well, I have, to, I have to own up. It wasn't just his memory. You know, memory is a funny thing, and I've got a pretty good memory. But I have to tell you, there were a couple places in the book that I was fact-checking one thing and fell over another that could have been total disaster. Um, and I, I started, I, there was something in the book in which I mentioned somebody, and when I looked up something else having to do with that chapter, I fell over the fact that the person that I mentioned, because it was a chapter that I wrote, because I had the experience, I mentioned a person that died seven years before we ever made that program. I mean, that would have been a total disaster. And I, called up David, and I called up David and I said, David, you're not going to believe what I have to tell you. I just fell over a, a fact that could have caused us great agony <laughs> if, if a reporter or a reviewer ever thought, you know, ever decided to write. If I left in there the name of the person that I thought it should have been and I didn't catch this mistake, the reviewer would have said, Joan Kramer thinks she talks to dead people. So it wasn't just David's memory, it was mine as well. And after that, we fact-checked everything to the hilt. Because that mm -hmm. made me really nervous. I could have sworn that was the name of the person that I was supposed to be dealing with, and it wasn't. Well, your, your, memory can play your memory plays tricks, of course. So it's good that there are, there are two of us, because if, if, if there's a conflict, we, finally, we, we, we work it out to try and determine what actually happened. But we were usually pretty close, weren't we, John? In we were usually pretty close, but I mean, I made another blunder. I, I identified a picture with the wrong person. There's a picture in the book of uh, Paul Newman with James Naughton and Maria Tucci. And on, in the first caption that we wrote for that book, David said to me, who is this woman on the left? I said, that's Kate Burton. It turns out not to be Kate Burton. It was Maria Tucci, and we caught it, thank God, before the book, book was published. What kind of period of time? So you get the yes from the agent, and then you have to start writing and pulling together some of these stories, because you had pre-written some of it, which is great. But how long then does it take you to write it and then pour through the manuscript and catch all these things that you're doing? Oh, it was a couple it was of years. Over a year. It was, it was almost years, two yeah. years, I think, really. It was almost yeah. two years, and I'll tell you one of the major efforts. You should have seen my apartment, Mike, when we had to choose pictures. Because, you know, David <laughs> and I walked, walked around with cameras on, on, on every shoot we did. And I made scrapbooks, as David said. Well, my living room... <laughs> was like an obstacle course. If I had to leave the living room to go to any other room, I was jumping hurdles over scrapbooks. 
And of course, the other thing is we, we, we never, we never <laughs> intended this to be a picture book, of course. So we were trying to be very judicious about how many pictures we used and which pictures and where. And we wanted you know, just enough to make people, give people a sense of what happened where and what the, what the situation was. But, but it, 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 it's, it's a text with some pictures, not pictures with a little bit of text. <laughs> I know that not everyone is the most pleasant interview or, or person to deal with. Did you find yourself censoring yourself when it came to what you're going to talk about in the book? Did we censor ourselves? I don't think we did. I, I know that there, are, there, are, there are a few instances where we had problems, and I think we're pretty upfront about that. It, it, it's, it's, as, you, as you know, it's, it's, it's not the sort of book where you're going to go for the salacious gossip, but we're just trying to tell people what really happened. Um, when we had fallings out, we described the fallings out. Fortunately, um, I would say in uh, pretty much all instances except one, uh, we ended up being friends with the people we fell out with. Uh, all, all fences were mended, <laughs> and we and we 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 you know the experiences were good experiences. There's only one there's only one situation where we were basically uh, did not mend a fence, and, um, and that's clear there. But I don't I don't think we I don't think we censored ourselves, did we, John? No, it didn't. I mean, not that I, I mean, I really don't, I don't, I don't have any recollection of saying, oh, we shouldn't say that. I'll tell you what's a little scary, Mike. You know, some of the people, many of the people about whom we did shows are no longer with us, but their families and friends are still alive. So when I got, when I first got a phone call a couple of weeks ago from Shirley Fonda, Henry's widow, I was a nervous wreck because, you know, you, you don't know what people are not going to like or what are going to like. One word can make a big difference. So, so we sent her a book and she called and she said, I stayed up all night. I'm crazy about this book. I've just ordered 14 copies. <laughs> I said, Shirley, that's fabulous. Julie Garfield, John Garfield's daughter, was crazy about the book. But it's a little Susie Tracy, Spencer's daughter, is crazy about the book. So Wait, far, we haven't offended you never know, though. You just never know. You always, you always hope so you haven't upset people. So far, we haven't defended anybody. That at least that they haven't told that they have. At least that they've not told us. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. It must have been such an unusual experience for you guys to go because I know you're not limited to just doing documentaries. You've done a lot of other work over your careers, but to be known for your documentaries and be focusing on your documentaries in this particular body of work and then kind of being a different documentarian as far as going from one medium to a completely different medium with print, it must have been kind of an odd shift for you to now you're documenting the behind the scenes and you're you're documenting yourselves because obviously you guys weren't the stars of the movies that you were creating, the shows, but now you kind of have to put yourself in the spotlight a little bit. It's kind of interesting what happened here because we started off with these stories about stars. We, we, we were fortunate enough to have worked with these amazing people, and it, it's still kind of startling to us to look back and see how many of, of the, of, of the of people from the golden age of Hollywood, for want of a better term, that we, we were lucky enough to work with. But then we had to decide when we were putting together the structure of the book, how do we hold all these stories together? 
and the only way that seemed obvious was to was to was to to talk about making a program but the the the, the book is not supposed to be about how we made shows it's that that's the glue that holds together the other stories but what's been fascinating to me how is how many people have commented on uh, on the the stories that we have of how the shows are put together. I, I didn't think that was going to be interesting to people, but it seems to have fascinated a lot of people. And I'll tell you the biggest challenge that I found. When I'm talking to you, Mike, I have the luxury of telling you a story or telling you, answering a question with the use of the inflections of my voice going up and down, and I can I can I can make something sound like I'm amused or that I'm moved. You can't do that on a printed page. I don't have the luxury of using my voice. And therefore, we had to get across the flavor that we wanted, as the, the same or close to the same flavor as we, when we told the stories to family and friends originally. We had to find that means to get it across just by the words. That's the writer's craft, but what, w- one of the things that I found was, was really great was when, when we're writing scripts for television, we're always confined with time. Uh, you, you probably have 50 minutes, maybe an hour to tell a story, and, it, and you're trying to cram a huge amount of information into that small amount of time. So you may have a 20-second bit of narration, but in that 20 seconds of narration, you have to get across four facts and introduce a clip. So everything is compressed and concise. What's wonderful about writing a book is that you have time to let the writing breathe, and you, you're not you're not constantly fighting time. Uh, you can tell the story in the time it needs and with the words it needs. I, I found that a wonderful luxury that I enjoyed. Tell me about the evening that you got to host on TCM recently. That was remarkable. Let me just say, Mike. When we wrote this book and it was finally finished, I expected to have reactions from reviewers and from um, critics that were of a certain age. I didn't think young people were going to be interested in reading about or even wanting to review a book that dealt with Catherine Hepburn, Jimmy Stewart, etc. Because they obviously are not young, you know, today movie stars. I'm blown away by the fact that young people are reviewing this book, talking to us on the phone about it, etc., etc. And I have to give credit to Turner Classic Movies because I think they have spawned generations of new people to movies of the past. And I, I really do believe that. And I think that the fact that they asked us to um, co-host with Robert Osborne and decided to show four of our, five of our programs on the same night. I don't think they've ever done that before, and we did the intros and outros for each of those shows. It was fabulous, absolutely fabulous. And, of course, Robert's an old friend, and he's wonderful. So we were thrilled to be doing it. It was very generous of TCM to do that, and uh, we're, we're very thankful. And, it's, and it seems to have had a very, very positive response. At least that's what we've heard. They came to us. We didn't suggest that to them, and they picked the shows. We didn't suggest the shows either. Oh, wow. First of all, they owned the rights to some of those shows, so that was part of the reasons for their choices. But nevertheless, I think they chose and put a very interesting evening together, and we were thrilled. I mean, we had a very good time, and I, it, as, I, as David said, people seem to 
I, I'm still getting reactions right. from people who saw it. <laughs> yeah, me too. Everybody, everybody said to us, we saw your dog and pony show on TV. <laughs> Joan, I wanted to ask you, you were a talent coordinator on the Dick Cavett show. Mm-hmm. And when I think about, you know, you guys have talked to so many fantastic people over the years and everything. Dick Cavett was always known for just his great eclectic group of guests. What was it like being a talent coordinator on that show? Well, it was eclectic. Um, and I mean, there were lines around the block often, you know, we taped at a theater called the little theater on West 58th street, um, with a live audience. And it was always live to tape. So we taped from 6 to 7.30, and it went on the air as it was taped at 11.30. Never edited. Well, Dick had people walk out on him. <laughs> I mean, you know, literally leaving him holding the bag. I mean, he, he called Lester Maddox a bigot, and Lester Maddox got up and walked out, leaving, leaving Dick with airtime to fill. Another time, Lily Tomlin walked out because Chad Everett, from uh, Medical Center, he was the star of Medical Center, Chad Everett asked the panel, before Dick could get a word in edgewise, what is everybody's favorite possession? I'll tell you mine, it's my wife. At which point, Lily Tomlin got up and said, invite me back, Dick, I'm leaving. It was being on your, it was the greatest, I, I still say it was the greatest job in television. No offense to David or the shows we've done since, but doing a daily show of 90 Minutes, when people dropped out, when people walked out, when people, I mean, it was, you know, you had to be on your toes. It was fabulous. I adored it's an amazing that. Train. It's an amazing training, that. Live television is, is very, very stimulating. And although that was done to tape, it was effectively live. And as Joan said, you had to be completely on your toes and prepared to roll with the punches because you have, you have to get the show on the air. And there's no, we're not ready yet. There's no, oh, can we do it tomorrow? No, no, you have to do it now and you have to make it work. And it has to look terrific on the air. It really it, way, it, it, what was the best out of you. David, you also worked in a, on some very interesting shows, but one of them where I know you had a lot of, you know, diva-like behavior must have been Sesame Street. Oh, <laughs> you started that. You started, that was such a joy. Um, I, I just for um, uh, it was a relatively brief period because I was actually doing a lot of other stuff at the same time. But I was I was very lucky that they asked me if I'd be interested in directing Sesame Street. They'd lost one of their directors, and they were looking for somebody to come in. And of, of course, it was a a show that was already running like clockwork, and so it was it was not difficult for me to come in because it it, it almost would have directed itself, as it were. But what a wonderful experience! I'm sorry, I sound like I'm gushing a little bit, but they were great performers. I was uh, fortunate enough to work with uh, with Jim Henson and Frank. Um, uh, and and uh, with them, you, you didn't really have to do anything except point the camera, and it would all just happen for you. Uh, they, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the, the very first time I, I actually worked with them, and one of the reasons I was invited to direct Sesame Street was way, way back when I was working at Channel 13, uh, and I was involved in the Pledge Weeks there. And PBS had finally persuaded Sesame Street to do some pledge spots. And they decided the way to do pledge spots was to do with the Muppets. So um, I was working at Channel 13, and I was asked if I would direct these, these Muppet pledge spots. Well, I have to tell you, I've never had so much fun in my life, because 
they they stayed in character between takes. <laughs> and they riffed on the script. The, the, the creativity that was in that studio was enough to blow the top out the roof off the place. It was, oh, wow. a, it, was, it was a thrilling experience. to it. I mean, you've heard about how good they are. Uh, yes, they are. But it didn't require much from the director, trust me. You just point the camera, and you're lucky to have those people in front of it. David invited me to, the, to a Sesame Street taping when he was doing a Muppets day, and so I met Kermit, and I met Snuffleupolis. <laughs> they were wonderful. I adored them, and I was absolutely fascinated to see the mechanics because, you know, I just buy into it. When I'm, when I'm watching television, I take off my producer's hat really fast, and I just buy what I'm watching. And so when I, when, I, when I saw Big Bird, for example, and I, you know, I mean, as David explained to him how Big Bird... Oh, that, 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 that's too much to explain how it works. Too much to, yeah. <laughs> anyway, when I saw Big Bird's head droop, I said, David, what happened there? And he said, it's actually his hand. He has to take a rest occasionally, Joan. <laughs> it's the hand that's in the head. He can't stand there all the time. <laughs> I, I will admit to you, Joan, I also didn't know how Big Bird worked until oh. like maybe a year ago. I saw a blueprint of how the mechanics are, and I never would have thought that. And the little TV monitor inside Big Bird, so that uh, Carol Spinney, who always, when I was there, it was always Carol Spinney uh, doing Big Bird so that Carol could see where he was going and not bump into people. There was a great parody that they had on Sesame Street a few years ago, and it was um, it was right after Birdman came out, the <laughs> Michael Keaton film, and it was oh called Big Birdman. Oh, oh, I can imagine. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> you know what, what? What is wonderful about Sesame Street, and I'm sure you've realized this, Mike, it, it's, a, it's a show for preschool kids, very, very young kids, of course. But the producers realized right from the very beginning that for the kids to get the most out of the show, they had to watch it with their parents. So there, so there are always elements of the show that are written for the parents that go way over the head of the kids. <laughs> but it, 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 makes, it makes the show enjoyable. Whatever age you are, you can watch the show and get something out of it. It's not, oh, my God, this is for two-year-olds. No, there's something in there for you <laughs> as well. But you know, you know what else I found fascinating? David told me, I didn't witness this myself, but David told me that when he started to direct Sesame Street, he was absolutely fascinated to see the uh, puppeteers, the, you know, Jim Henson, Frank Oz, and the rest of them who, who become Kermit and et cetera, et cetera. Little kids are seeing human beings working puppets, and they pay no attention to the human beings. They just relate to the puppets. Now, these, these, are, these are the sequences where they often do bring in uh, small kids to, with the performers. Not a lot, but every so often you have. And, and what really struck me is that when you had a child working with, with one of the Muppets, it was very clear that there was a, a man lying on the floor with his head up this piece, his hand up this piece of felt, right? The kid was oblivious to the fact that there was a human being on the floor and was re re reacting totally to the Muppet. It's, it's amazing how the child could focus on what it wanted to focus and just shut out the rest. It was a great experience. I, I loved working Sesame Street. I wish I could have done it for longer. Well, I've got time for one more question for you guys, and uh, I wanted to ask Joan specifically, what was it like 
dealing with Joanne Woodward trying to get her on the phone with Paul Newman around. <laughs> <laughs> when you when you met Paul in person, he was very shy, very very quiet, and he was not he was not happy with fame. I mean, he liked what fame could do for him, and he used his fame as as you know brilliantly by giving money to disabled children and charities, etc. But he was not, he was not um, out to, to get more fame. However, the man was a practical joker. Every time I would call the house and he'd answer, most of the time he'd answer with his usual hiya, and I'd say, hi, it's Joan, is Joanne there? Well, the first time, before I caught on to his deviousness, he said to me, she's not here, she's doing summer stock in Calcutta. <laughs> and I said... Calcutta, India, it's August. Isn't it a little hot there? And she, he said to me, she's from Georgia. She's used to heat. <laughs> and I said, no kidding. I just talked to her a couple weeks ago. When did she leave? He said, I said, how did she get there? She doesn't, go, she doesn't fly. Joanne doesn't like flying at all. So he said, she'll fly if I'm with her. So I took her on my plane, and I'll pick her up in three weeks. I said, did you take water? I mean, what, what, you know, I mean, I kept asking questions. I was, I was serious. I completely bought this. And I said, well, listen, I know the two of you well enough to know that I'm not going to leave a message because you'll never give it to her three weeks from now. I'll just call back. And he said, don't hang up. She's walking into the room right now. <laughs> I said, Paul, stay on the phone and put her on an extension. He said, why? I said, you'll see. He said, Joanne, pick up the extension. I think I've just gotten myself in trouble. She said, what did you do now? So he picked up, she picked up the phone and she said, hi, who's this? And I said, hi, it's Joan. I said, Paul, why don't you tell your wife where you just told me she was and why I couldn't talk to her? And he said, I told her you were in Calcutta doing summer stock. And she said, Paul, hang up the phone. I'll deal with you later. <laughs> That was only one. I mean, I heard it constantly. I mean, I, one time he answered the phone, Ollie North here. I said, fine, Miss, I'm Queen Victoria. Where's Mrs. North? I finally got, you know, I sort of cottoned on to him. I was ready for him every time I had him on the phone because I knew that he was going to give me some crazy story. When they were making Mr. and Mrs. Bridge, I called the house in Kansas where they were living while they were shooting there. And he answered the phone and he said, I told you never to call me here. She's home. The key will be under the mat, motel room number six, route eight. I said, Paul, and in the background, Joanne's hysterical laughing, saying, are you driving Joan crazy again? Give me the phone. I said, Paul, you know, you and I are going to get arrested if anybody's listening in on this phone call. He said, good, that would be fun. I said, yeah, right, great fun. Thanks a lot. I don't particularly want to be on the cover of the National Enquirer, if you don't mind. <laughs> Joan, David, thank you so much for your time. This has been terrific talking to you. I could talk to you guys all night, to be honest. Well, thank, thank you, Mike. It's been a pleasure. It's, a, it's been a pleasure, and thank you for your enthusiasm and your interest and your questions are terrific. Thanks. Hooray for Hollywood That screwy valley hooey ha any office boy or young mechanic can be a panic with just a good-looking pain. And any barmaid, she can be.
best are made If she dances with or without her fan Hooray for Hollywood Where you're terrific if you're even good Where anyone at all from Shirley Temple To Amy Semple is equally understood Go out and try your luck You might be Donald Duck this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.